I was born, raised in Sana'a, Yemen, the capital of Yemen. Thriving city, lots of traffic, lots of cars. It was a very busy scene. I come from a mixed background where mom's born, raised in Vietnam. So she grew up closer to her Vietnamese root than anything. So I was brought up as a Yemeni Vietnamese, which is pretty hard to come by. Do you know any other Yemeni Vietnamese? Uh, yes, there is actually a... Um, so all the Vietnamese that, Yemeni Vietnamese that migrated out of Vietnam, they were captive in a camp. It was lived there and all that, but they're all like, you know, just restrained in there. After a while, the camp was taken over by military coup. They spread out. But all those families kept in touch with each other. So we do know a bunch of other Vietnamese Yemeni families. We need to back up for a second. What? <laughs> Can you tell me like in more detail? Hey everyone, this is Dana. I'm a producer at Kernan Cultures. I'll be taking over from Hiba for this episode. This story will be told in two chapters. This is chapter one. All of it begins and ends with one person, 24-year-old Faraj al-Badani, who you just heard. He is a Yemeni-Vietnamese living in California. And when I first met Faraj, I thought, whoa, that's a cool mix. A Yemeni married a Vietnamese in Yemen, they had kids. Interesting, not a mix I've heard of before, but it's not insane, right? And then Faraj started talking to me about how his parents met, about this small moment in time when Vietnamese refugees fleeing communism in the 1970s were secretly sent to Yemen for safety and lived in camps in northern Yemen. And I thought, what? Few people had studied this, there was almost nothing online, and the most Yemenis could tell me about this Vietnamese community in their country was that they remember eating at a Vietnamese restaurant once upon a time in Sana'a. But about how the Vietnamese got to Yemen in the first place, who took them there, who facilitated the relocation of these families, who ran the camp that they stayed in, and under what policy? Nothing. So today, we're bringing you a story from a fleeting moment in history that so few people have heard of, or researched, all told through the lens of Faraj and his family. My name is Dana Balut, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Well, okay, just why don't you start by explaining to me how you got into the story. This is Casey's managing producer, Alex Atak, who really held my hand through a lot of this episode. Okay, so I met um, Fetaj through a mutual friend. A friend of mine uh, made a documentary about breakdancing in different parts of the world. And Fetaj was kind of featured in that documentary when he was still living in Yemen. And I went to a screening of the documentary, and there I met Faraj. And I remember my first impression was that he had walked to the screening from the local airport, and it was a two-hour walk. And I said, why didn't you just, like, Uber or something? And I, I remember him, t- like, hinting that he was kind of tied on cash, but also telling me, like, oh, that's nothing. I used to walk, like, double the distance every day in Yemen to my school. So it wasn't a big deal at all. And he just, like, brushed it off like it was nothing. Uh, and I remember he just, like, he stayed in my mind, um, and then two years later, 
I decided I wanted to maybe do is explore, at least explore doing a story with him. And I thought it would be about maybe breakdancing in Yemen. Uh, but then it <laughs> turned out to be nothing to do with breakdancing. The story, I guess, starts, we can start at 1975. And it actually starts far away from Yemen and starts in uh, South Vietnam. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. North Vietnam was communist, South Vietnam wasn't, and in 1975, what they call the fall of Saigon is when the North Vietnamese forces ended up taking over South Vietnam uh, to become, you know, what eventually be, still is a communist uh, government. For the first time in 20 years, the face of Ho Chi Minh was on display. The evacuation plan was a shambles. Desperate refugees walked or ran along the road. Many have already covered 200 miles in 12 agonizing days since the decision to abandon the Central Highlands without warning. So how the story goes is that there was a community in uh, South Vietnam that had uh, Yemeni blood or had, they had Yemeni descendants or, or were half Yemeni in some way. And when the communists took over, feared for their lives. The American airlift only took a fraction of those who wanted to leave. And for hours after the last departure, scores of people still crowded onto the embassy roof in the vain hope of rescue. What historians have told me is that uh, these, these Yemeni, let's call them Yemeni Vietnamese, although a lot of them were just Vietnamese, but had some sort of ties uh, to Western allies, so allies of the West, allies of the U.S., uh, and I think that's why they feared for their lives. So uh, these half-quarter, one-eighths Yemeni-Vietnamese families ended up uh, getting almost smuggled out of the country and flown to Yemen. And one of those women was Lynn, who happens to be Fetish's aunt. He lives with her now in California. We ha we're leaving at night time, and we have to be at the office by 10 o'clock in the morning. At this point, Lynn was about 17 or 18 years old. And then I remember there was a bus, a bus that uh, take us, take on of the people who left the country, left go to Yemen. It's a many family, not just my family, to go to the airport. So 500 families um, from South Vietnam, what was Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh, left, were, were almost smuggled out of South Vietnam. And the way Faraj's aunt and, and mom kind of tell me is that they left, um, they remember leaving at 10 o'clock in the morning and they didn't tell any of their relatives. Because we arrest somebody, we find out we left the country and they may, we may get arrest or something like that. That's what I remember. 10 o'clock in the morning, they left. They didn't tell anyone else around them. Were taken to what they say was like the Yemeni consulate in Vietnam, uh, slept there overnight, and then in the middle of the night, these two or three planes uh, were filled with these families that, like them, had some sort of Yemeni connection to them, and then were flown uh, from South Vietnam to first Thailand. When we get to Thailand, we have to sleep in the airport. Thailand Airport for three or four days, I think. And then from Thailand to Pakistan, 
for a couple days and then from Pakistan to Yemen where they ended up uh, in a refugee camp in Taiz. I mean, what? so what kind of life did Faraj's mum and her sister kind of move to when they moved to Yemen? Yeah, a hard one, a very, very hard one. So Faraj's aunt, uh, as she recalls it, she says our entire family had $5 when we arrived in two change of clothes, and that's, that's it. We only allowed to have two outfits for each one of us, and that's all we have. And we have no money, nothing at all. And it is, it is very scary. So, wait, do we know, I mean, do we know, like, who arranged or enabled yeah. these flights and who was kind of running that whole thing? Yeah. So... They had come under the, um, I guess under the, I don't want to say invitation, but I will say the welcoming of the Yemeni president at the time, which was President Hamdi. In particular, this kind of policy of Hamdi to, to welcome refugees, because in addition to welcoming people from Vietnam, he also welcomed people from Ethiopia, and I guess it was an overall policy to welcome these refugees um, that were seeking, I guess, uh, in quotations, a better life. I, didn't, I, I don't know that it ended up being a better life. They arrived to this place, they had no idea where they were, arrived eventually to this camp and they didn't have any money and uh, didn't speak the language and had no idea um, how to act in this new country. So what happened eventually is that uh, they needed a way to make money. So Faraj's aunt, uh, who was around 17 at the time, uh, found a job. Someone had mentioned to her, one of her fellow uh, Vietnamese in the camp, had mentioned that there was a cookie factory that was accepting workers, Vietnamese workers. Not too far from my camp, maybe about three or four miles away from the camp, and they come, they uh, offer us some jobs. And that's what she did. She got a job at that cookie company for about a few months, she said. I'm the only one that can they go to work to take care of my family? So I get a job at the cookie company. Do you remember how much they used to pay you? Uh, they, not very much. I think, um, and I don't think this is hard to imagine, it's not like far-fetched for the Middle East, is that... Um, so they look different, right? They look different than other women in the country. And they were used to working. They were used to going out, working, going out alone, walking alone, um, going to get groceries, whatever. And of course, this, I, this wasn't normal for, for women in Yemen at the time. So they were catcalled. They were, people called them names, verbally, sexually harassed. And this kind of hardship didn't just end in the 70s. Lynn happened to meet an American and got married and went off to California. But Faraj's mom stayed in Yemen. She met Faraj's dad, a Yemeni who was born and raised in Ethiopia but moved back to Yemen. Also a crazy story. They had three kids. And even though by then she had been in Yemen for decades, had children there, was fluent in Arabic, Vietnamese and English, ran a restaurant in Yemen, she was still different. And now, so were her kids. It was weird. It was really difficult blending in. I mean, I do blend in look-wise. This is Faraj again. But uh, what really gave it off was probably, I still remember till now, was 
my mom didn't wear the hijab, and she dropped me off at school, which caused a lot of controversy. I had, I mean, it was, it was elementary school, middle school, people were telling me my mom's going to hell because she's not wearing the scarf for the longest of time, which, you know, and they asked why I told them she's not from here, which kind of gave out that I'm not full-bred Yemeni, that something, they would call it wrong, I'd just say different. Uh, I have two siblings, I have an elder brother and elder sister, I'm the youngest of the family. Uh, my house setting was very quiet, I'd say. We weren't very loud, I mean, we were humorous, we would joke around playing, but we're not very loud family. Where it was calm and quiet, especially because my dad used to sleep in the afternoons. He worked night shift, so we couldn't be too loud. We lived on a dead end road, so nobody comes in, nobody goes out from there except people that live in the neighborhood, so we all knew each other. And my mom's the kind of person that likes to wake up early, go out, clean, help just clean in front of the house, keep the neighborhood organized, which just made the people favor because they did it too in our neighborhood, so everyone just got along. Actually, a lot of people would send their kids over, my mom tutored them, keep them in daycare, teach them English. What was your mom like? Well, my mom is the definition of a saint for me. I mean, she would house any living creature that needs housing. She'd cook for whoever's hungry, help whoever she can. She'd never complain. She's a really resilient definition of a hustler, I'd say. But she had rules, and if you break the rules, I mean, it got bad. Typical, but at least her mom to throw you with a sandal or something, chase you with a belt around the house. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic for as long as I can remember. In 2012, there was a breaking point in the family, and Fereja's father took off. Around the same time, things started to get a little worrisome in Yemen. You're looking at the aftermath of a deadly attack on Yemen's defense ministry in the capital of Sana'a. Men wearing uh, army uniform have attacked uh, the gates of the uh, Yemeni Ministry of Defense. The barely reported attack in the capital city of Yemen was typical of al-Qaeda's current tactics. There is some gunfire now in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear, but just as we uh, came on air, there was also continuous uh, gunfire. I remember he started getting a bit more hectic. I remember starting more explosions around. Suicide bombers started appearing everywhere. Um, I mean, it was like in your region. Like, you, you can hear the explosion, your windows shatter, you hear the windows flapping around, you can hear the glass buzzing and all that, and it just progressed more and more from there on. With this in the background, it was also becoming clearer that there weren't too many promising careers for people like Fereg, who were smart, trilingual, hardworking, but also, you know, not fully Yemeni. So in 2015, Fereg's family made a decision. Why, why did you decide, um, Faraj told me that uh, as a family, it's like you all decided that he would be the one to go to the U.S. This is me speaking on the phone with Faraj's mom, who is still in Sana'a. Why him? Yes. Why not uh, Jamal or Hind or... I want him to be, don't feel bad, because his father left and he's very young. I want him to think about his future. It's not uh, like his sister and brother. Yeah. He's sacrificed because of, we want to do him to become, not like us, not like me or somebody else. My, my, my daughter and my son say, that is okay, because... 
Farad is not, you know, like another child or something. We 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 say, okay, let him go. We can sacrifice for our, our life, but not him. Uh, I remember my family dropping me off to the airport. We had our neighbor drive us because he had like a big bus and we could fit all the luggage inside. My mom's lecturing me on the bus ride. You better behave, be well. Don't don't make a mess at your aunt's house. Don't eat all their food. My mom didn't break a tear until I walked through the scan gate. That's the only time I she actually cried when they were prepping the entire thing and came out. I gave her a hug and gave my other siblings a hug and then just headed out. So what happens when a family puts all their eggs into one basket? And in this case, it's in the youngest of the family, Farage. How big of a difference is there between what you think America will be for your son and what it actually ends up being? And how does it feel to watch your country spiral into a gruesome, terrible war while your Trump-supporting neighbors hand you anti-Muslim flyers? In the second part of the story, we'll follow Farage's new life as he navigates it in America. It's a story about what modern migration looks like for a young Arab at a time of social, economic, and political tension in the U.S. Not surprising, it's very different than the time of our parents' generation decades ago. That's coming up in two weeks. This episode was produced by myself, Dana Balut, and Alex Atak, with editorial support from Hibba Fisher. Sound designed by Alex Atak. Thank you also to the amazing Bella Brahim, our marketing lead, who helps bring the episode to you. I want to take a quick second to first thank Adam Schoberg, who directed the film Shake the Dust, that features Farage and other amazing breakdancers from around the world. Shake the Dust is an awesome film that you can find on Netflix that you should please watch. It's truly beautiful. And secondly, a massive, massive thank you to all the Yemeni scholars and researchers who helped me unpack some of the complex history, especially Najwa Adra, Hassan Al-Ansi, and John Swanson. I also want to thank Faraj and his family for being so open and warm with us despite us poking around in their family history. And finally, a big thank you to everyone who is supporting us on Patreon. A shout out to our new patrons, Anne, Ahmed, Bidu, Jana, Jeff, Michael, Nina, Nora, Philip, and Tim. Thank you guys. Until next time. <laughs>